seventh message in a series on the Holy Spirit. Linda did last week about walking in the Spirit. And today we're looking at how the Spirit empowers us in prayer. And I, sort of as I planned this, had a rough idea of what direction I reckoned we would go in. And we're going in that direction a little bit. Uh, but I really feel God steered this this week as I, as I thought about it and pondered it. And he brought in other things that he wants emphasis placed on this morning. So um, I'm excited about the message. Uh, I really hope you can draw something from it for your own prayer life, no matter where you are on the journey of prayer, whether you're a sort of a, a veteran of prayer or whether you're new to it or whether things have grown cold and you want them warmed up or whatever. But uh, I, really, I really think if you have an open heart, you will take something away that will bless your prayer life. So this morning in particular, prayer and the Spirit. Um, let me read from Romans chapter 8, just a couple of verses to start off. Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 26 and 27. And then we'll bounce around, as you would expect, a few places in Paul as time goes on. Romans 8, verse 26. This is where Linda left us last week in, in, in Romans 8, life in the Spirit. And towards the sort of latter part of the chapter, Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Anybody weak? <laughs> we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. <coughs> Let's just pray briefly. Father, this is so important. We want to be a praying people, a praying church. Father, will you come? How many sermons have we heard on prayer? I don't know, but will you come and anoint and bless your word and may our prayer lives sore as a result of it. In Jesus' name, amen. The Spirit helps us, eh? Do you ever find prayer difficult? <laughs> huh? You don't know what to say. Maybe you're praying for a situation that seems such a mess you don't even know what to ask God for. Sometimes I think about people's lives and I think about children who come to you with their shoelaces in a knot and say, can you get this knot out? And you're like, I have no idea what part to pull first or to try to unravel this. When you go to pray for particular situations and particular people, sometimes it's such a mess you don't know what to say. Sometimes you personally are going through something that has kicked you around so much that you find it really hard to rise above your emotions, your feelings, your hurt, and pray in a way that is not just tainted by, by how you feel. Sometimes you're so broken you can hardly say a word, let alone put together sentences in the presence of God. Sometimes on the upside you're so full of praise and adoration that the English language just won't do it. You can't express your joy and your thankfulness to God. And I want to look at three ways the Holy Spirit empowers prayer today. 
One of them is probably quite predictable. The other two, maybe you haven't just thought of as much, but I think you'll be blessed. Three ways that the Spirit empowers prayer. If we are in this position where we don't know what we ought to pray for, we don't know how we ought to pray, we read in Paul in Romans 8, he says that the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. When you don't know the words to use, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the gift of tongues. I'm not going to talk about tongues all morning. I'm going to, you know, this is the first thing that I want to look at today. And I want to give you some teaching on what the scripture says about praying in tongues. You may practice it. You may have never heard of it. You may have heard of it and thought that's weird. I want nothing to do with that. Let's see what Paul says. Let's see what the, what the scripture says. I believe in Romans 8, what we've just read there. I believe that Paul is alluding to prayer in tongues. I believe it's the same thing that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. I believe it's the same thing happened in Acts chapter 2. Uh, this gift of tongues. What is it? Well, it is spirit-inspired prayer, praise or thanksgiving, addressed to God in a language that is not understood by the speaker or the hearers, unless there happens to be somebody there, unlikely, but has happened, uh, who knows the language. Spirit-inspired prayer, praise or thanksgiving addressed to God in a language not understood by the speaker. I believe the gift of tongues is active in the church today. All right. And I believe it is the ability to, to pray in a language that you have not learned. It is not incoherent babbling. I believe it is a clear, articulate language, and I want to go through some of the questions, some of the, the, the issues that people have surrounding this gift. It is a gift that has been much abused, and the whole reason that we've got 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 is because it was being abused in the Corinthian church. They were hyped up about praying in tongues. They thought it was a sign of advanced spiritual maturity. They were doing it all the time and Paul has to correct them on their practice. That's why we've got those two chapters. It's, it's correction that he brings. I want to first of all just put up on the screen some of the negative things that Paul says about speaking in tongues. And that's it. Okay, blank screen, because he doesn't say anything negative about speaking in tongues at all, anywhere. He never puts it down. He puts limitations on it. He puts teaching around it. He puts boundaries around it. But he never says anything negative about praying in tongues. He'll say something negative to them about their use of the gift, their abuse of the gift. But he never says anything negative about it. What, what is tongues for? According to scripture, it is help for prayer. So what we read earlier in Romans 8, 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. How do you pray for Putin's armies? You know, what do you pray? That all drop dead? Is that the way to pray for somebody who's made in the image of God? I don't know. That, the, you know, that they'll get saved, that they'll see the light, that they'll be... How do you pray for some of these situations? How do you pray for an elderly person who you deeply love, but they're really ill? 
and you want them. And at the same time, you're thinking the better thing here is that God takes them. But it's really hard to know what way to pray. How do you pray if you're standing outside a house of mourning where some awful tragedy has happened and you're going in and you know that as I go in there, I'm the only one bringing any light or any hope. You know, Nobody in this family or this situation has light and has hope. And you're standing outside the door thinking, what on earth do I do? Those moments where you don't know how to pray. Tongues, I believe, is the Spirit helping us to pray. Helping us to pray. And it is not a sign of strength in Romans 8, 26. Quite the opposite. It's a sign of weakness. Let, let's not have the idea that a Christian who prays in tongues then sort of parades around as if they're, I'm, I'm the strong one. You know, I'm the special one, as Jose said. I'm the one who can pray in tongues, so I'm better than all of the rest of you. No, the very fact that we need to do this is, a, is evidence of our weakness. Our reliance, our utter reliance on God, the need for the Holy Spirit to pray with us and to pray through us. So it is help for prayer. It is a gift, a gift from God. According to 1 Corinthians 12 that we've been at a little bit through this series uh, where Paul lists some spiritual gifts, he says in verse 7, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then he lists some gifts and one of those gifts is speaking in different kinds of tongues. Every time you see tongues today, think languages. Languages, okay? Different languages. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. These are the work of one and the same spirit and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. It is a gift from God. A gift. It's not something we've earned. It's not something you learn how to do. It is a gift that he has given. And as I said already, tongues are languages. It's not just babbling. It's not just going la, 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 la. Amen. That is not tongues. Tongues will be an articulate language. For those of you that, that already do this, you will, you will recognize words and syllables and there will be clear structure to it and pattern to it and sentences to it. It will not just be a babbling mess. And in fact, you probably as well, if you have experience of it, you will probably find that sometimes in different situations it changes. Sometimes in life you hit a particular crisis, you know, where you really are weak and you really do not know how to pray and you pray in tongues and you know that it is different from it usually is. It's almost as if the gift in that particular circumstance changes for that particular circumstance. But the question is, is it an earthly language or a heavenly language? Sometimes you'll hear people talking about the heavenly language and by that they mean praying in tongues. Well, it could be either and it's maybe both. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there were lots of people visiting Jerusalem from lots of different surrounding regions. And they spoke lots of different languages. And whenever the apostles and the disciples, the 120, whenever they come out of the upper room and they're filled with the Holy Ghost and they have been speaking in tongues, these guys that are visiting Jerusalem in Acts 2.11 are astonished because they hear these, these apostles declaring the wonders of God in their own languages. So it is without a shadow of a doubt that on that occasion in Acts 2, the praying and the speaking in tongues and declaring the acts of God in tongues were known languages that were understood by some of the people there. 
not understood by Peter and the rest of the guys who were using them, but they were understood. So there definitely is a scriptural case that they are earthly languages. And there is also a scriptural case that they are heavenly languages. That's the wrong reference at the bottom. It should say 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am a clanging gong, resounding cymbal, yeah? The, now, Paul, there is a chance that Paul is being sarcastic here and he's taking a dig at the Corinthians. There is a chance that they believed they were speaking an angelic language and he's having a wee poke by saying that. But there is also a chance that he is acknowledging that there is tongues, there are languages that people use in prayer that are tongues of angels. So the jury's out on that one. The possibility is open. It could be earthly languages. It could be heavenly language. The point is, it is not understood by the person speaking it. They've never learned it and they do not know exactly what they're saying. And this is really hard for intelligent people. <laughs> and there's a lot of intelligent people here. Really hard. Because you're so used to using your brain when you're reading books and when you're doing your job uh, and when you're teaching the Bible, uh, whatever it is you're doing, to, to sort of almost <coughs> bypass your brain and not understand what you're praying, that's an act of faith. And it's hard to do. But I know from listening to Rick Watts talking about this in the past, he has referred to studies that have been done and I mean proper studies. I don't mean half-baked studies done in the kitchen at the back of a church someday. I mean proper studies that have been done where people praying in tongues, brain scans have been performed on them while they were praying in tongues. And it's not like the brain shuts down. The brain lights up like a Christmas tree. So it's, it's not as if somehow, you, you know, I, I can't understand it, but your, your, your understanding is bypassed when you're doing this. And that makes it difficult sometimes for people who like to know exactly what's going on all the time. It's a language. <coughs> Tongues are always. Now here we need to, we're, we're going to just rub up against a wee bit of classic Pentecostal teaching. And, you know, disagree with it. Tongues are always spoken to God. Always. They are never spoken addressed to people always to God I've seen prosperity pe preachers on YouTube talking to each other in tongues total nonsense just nonsense all right tongues is always spoken to God first Corinthians 14 which is sort of the main chapter on this topic anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God so therefore tongues is prayer it is praise. It is thanksgiving. That's what you're doing because you're addressing God. You're communicating with God whenever you pray in tongues. I'll come back to that a wee bit later on and, and, and just elaborate that point. It builds up the speaker. Now, that doesn't mean the person preaching, okay? It builds you up. Whoever is speaking in tongues, it builds that person up. Or in the old language, it edifies that person. Anyone who speaks in a tongue, 1 Corinthians 14, 4, edifies themselves. Okay? You want to build yourself up spiritually? You want to be strengthened spiritually in this life of battle? This is a gift that God has given that allows the speaker to build themselves up, to get stronger, 
to avail of the strength that the Spirit gives to be built up. And Paul, what Paul is doing throughout 1 Corinthians 14 is he's contrasting tongues and prophecy because the Corinthians were praying in tongues in church and nobody understood and it was silly. And Paul says, stop it. (laughs) He says, what you need to do in the gathered assembly is you need to prophesy because prophecy is understood and prophecy, prophecy builds people up because they know exactly what you're saying because you're speaking in English. Tongues does not build anyone up except the speaker, except the speaker. So when I pray in tongues, I am strengthening and building myself up. But it does not happen in the public gathering because it does not build other people up. Prophecy does that. And therefore, Paul encourages prophecy when the people are gathered. Like that for me, if that point alone that it builds you up does not cause you to want this. say, what's like you're a header. <laughs> you're a total nutter. Like if, if, if God has given a gift and said, here's a, here's a gift that you can use in your prayer life that will strengthen you and make you strong in this battle, in this world. And you say, yeah, okay, next point. Come on. Seriously, where's the hunger? You're always in control when you're speaking in tongues. In case you have thought that somebody who is praying in tongues is in some sort of wacky trance. You know those old Disney movies from the 70s and there was at some stage in the movie there was always a psychedelic bit like in Dumbo where all the multicolored elephants are floating around. Every Disney movie had that. <laughs> what were they on? Like, it, was re- it was quite scary actually for young children saying this. And, and sometimes I think people think that when, when somebody's praying in tongues that they've gone off into some ecstatic trance. They're tripping on the spirit they're they're just they're they're out of it that is that again that's totally untrue that's nonsense the you know the person who is praying in tongues is always in control you can you can you can do this anytime you can start it you can stop it it, it is it is you do not lose control the fruit of the spirit is self-control so he's not then going to give a gift that causes a complete lack of control it is not ecstatic It is not trippy. It is not weird. And the reason we know that we're always in control when we're doing this is that one of the things Paul says to the Corinthians in 14, 27 and 28 is he gives them some regulations for how it's to be done. And there's no point in people getting regulations and order for how to do this if you're not in control when you're actually doing it. So he says in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue... He's talking to them, the gathered assembly. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time. And someone must interpret. Paul never permits tongues to be spoken in the gathered assembly of God's people unless it is interpreted. He he will not allow uninterpreted tongues. All right? If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now that indicates the speaker is under complete control of what they're doing. They haven't gone off into, you know, multicolored elephants floating around the room. It is control at all times. It is not ecstatic or out of control. Now, as as that last verse suggested, it must be interpreted. Paul's heart in 1 Corinthians 14 is that the church would be built up. That's why he contrasts tongues and prophecy. 
Tongues is not understood. Nobody gets built up except the speaker. Do it at home. Prophecy is understood, builds everybody up. Do it in church. And he will allow tongues in the gathered assembly if there's someone else present with the gift of interpretation of tongues who can then interpret what the speaker has said. That's the only way that Paul will allow it. He does not forbid speaking in tongues at the end of the chapter. He doesn't forbid it. But he puts this limitation on it is that it must not happen in the gathered assembly unless someone is there to interpret it. Because once it's interpreted, then people can be built up because they understand what has been said. Okay? He doesn't want people to think that we're mad. The whole church gathers together, verse 23, and everyone speaks in tongues, and an inquirer or an unbeliever comes in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Yes, they will. And so they should. So Paul won't have it. He won't have the scenario where we're all babbling away in tongues and somebody comes in who is not a Christian and they take one look in and say, you are all nutters. I'm going home. So he won't, he won't allow that. A few questions before I move on. Is this available to everyone? 1 Corinthians 12 verse 30, Paul says, do all speak in tongues? It is a rhetorical question. That means he is expecting an answer. And the answer he's expecting, just hold on until I'm done. The answer he's expecting here is no. When you read that, that verse, let me just read it to you. He's, he's talking in chapter 12 about the body of Christ, about all the diversity that there is in the body of Christ. And he says, he says, first of all, in verse 28, God has appointed apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. And then he says, are all apostles? And the answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. <laughs> Thankfully, says you, felt sorry for Jason on Friday night, stuck at a table with three teachers, basically <laughs> lamenting everything. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. I've put in all those no's. Because Paul is asking a bunch of rhetorical questions and he's expecting the answer no for all of them. But, listen... What Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 is what happens when the church has gathered. He's not talking about just individual Christians. So when he says, do all speak with tongues, he's saying when the church is gathered, does everyone there speak in tongues? And the answer is no, they don't. I don't think he is making an argument here that in general, the answer to that is no for, for every individual Christian. Right? So just to make the point, Paul is talking about the gathered people of God. In that context, does everyone come together and speak in tongues? No, they don't. That does not mean he is saying that there are Christians who cannot do this. In, verse four, in chapter 14 and verse 5, he says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. And that, for me, starts to hint that possibly every Christian can do this. This is a gift to build you up in your individual prayer life. And for, I just feel that God wants everyone to have this. That it is available for all who will ask for it and who want it.
Is it the same as prophecy? You may, as I have many times experienced um, something in a Pentecostal gathering where somebody gets up and speaks in tongues, sits down again. Somebody else gets up and gives an interpretation of what has been said. And the interpretation sounds like prophecy. The interpretation sounds like God speaking to the church. Now, I have, I have a problem with that, okay? Um, tongues is to be interpreted in the church so that people can be built up, so they'll understand what's been said. But I, I, I and I would be run out of town here in, in traditional Pentecostal churches. I said earlier, tongues are spoken to God. I have witnessed so many times where someone speaks in tongue and then someone else gets up and interprets it and it sounds like God is speaking to the church. And I just find it difficult to put the two together. If the person speaking in a tongue has been, has been exercising prayer, praise, thanksgiving to God, then the interpretation of the tongue should sound like prayer, praise and thanksgiving to God. How, at what point does it flip around and go in the other direction? I don't understand. Some of you have never experienced that and you're wondering what I'm even talking about. But for those of you that have, it just doesn't sit well with me. And it doesn't sit well with me because it, do, it doesn't sit well with Paul, who every time he mentions tongues, it is spoken to God. How is it that the interpretation then flips around? I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Makes me a wee bit uncomfortable. I'm not entirely sure what's actually going on at that point um, or whether it is just a person's given a prophetic word that's not related to the tongue at all. But for my money, it is not the interpretation of the tongue because it's in a different direction. So is it the same as prophecy, interpreted tongues? No, I don't think so. Could I be exposed to a counterfeit spirit? I've heard this is the last question, then we're moving on. Could I be exposed to a counterfeit spirit? You maybe get people who say, you know, I, I like this idea about speaking in tongues, but I'm scared that when I ask for this, some other spirit will sneak in. You know, that like when you open the door and the dog sneaks out through the gap or, or whatever. Like as, I, as I open the door for, for God to come in and fill me so that I'll be able to, to do this, some other dirty spirit is going to come in instead. Could I be exposed to a counterfeit spirit? Listen to Jesus. Daniel read this a couple of weeks ago when we were at the start of the series. He read this in his, in his welcome one morning. Luke 11. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, We'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If I ask God for the Holy Spirit and for this gift of being able to pray in tongues, is, is he going to leave me exposed to another spirit? No, <laughs> definitely not. That is not an excuse to not seek this gift. Paul held this in the highest regard. The Apostle Paul. Arguably, you know, one of the greatest man in history. And he said to the Corinthians, I thank God. These, these ones who were going on in tongues a lot. <laughs> he said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. That's Paul. 
Now, if you're going to shut down tongues, if you're going to say tongues is for lunatics, or even, as I have heard, not, not an awful long way from here, somebody preach, not in this town, uh, that tongues is demonic. You've got to deal with Paul the Apostle who says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He loved it. He loved it. But in the church, gathered together, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. It has its place. And I believe its place is in private prayer. Unless and the occasion that someone else is present who is able to interpret, who has that gift, then possibly it can happen in the gathered assembly. But it is a gift for private prayer. Why would you not want this? <laughs> it's awesome. That was the first thing. The other two are a lot shorter. So three things that I'm looking at today that the Holy Spirit does to empower us in prayer. And the first thing is that he empowers us with a new language to pray. The second one, and, and the second and third, you might not have thought of an awful lot before. He empowers us for warfare. He empowers us for warfare. Paul says... Ephesians 5 verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil never stops. Never takes a break. Never retreats. Never regroups. He just keeps going. We need to be able to take our stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what you as a believer are up against. That is what is holding people in addictions and in all sorts of things and in sin and darkness. That's what it is. It is spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. They are real. Again, if you want to say that this is madness, then you're going to have to call Paul a lunatic. And you'll, you'll have to deal with me if you call Paul a lunatic. Okay. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and have done, have, after you've done everything, to stand. Now, traditionally, people then say there are six things in the armor of God. There's a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness and the feet, the shoes about the, the, the readiness to bring the gospel. There's a shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Six things. And we are told... That out of those six things, five of them are sort of more defense, defensive items of armor, and one of them is offensive, the, the sword of the Spirit. But there's a seventh, okay? There's not only six. If you have Ephesians 6 open, run your eye down, you see those six. But then there's a seventh thing that Paul says. This is so important, church. This is so important for, for your prayer life, for Tuesday nights, for, for the, the potential impact we can have on our community, this is so important because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And the seventh thing that Paul says as he lists the, the armor of God and the things that we have in order to do battle, the seventh one is pray in the Spirit. 
on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Praying in the Spirit. He does not state a piece of armor here like a sword or a shield. But he, he's talking about keeping alert. Keep praying for God's people. Again, the, 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 that staying alert, that is still the illustration of the soldier. Keeping his eyes open, keeping his wits about him, keeping aware of what is going on around him. What is this praying in the spirit which is linked with the battle against spiritual forces of wickedness? I think it is still not exclusively praying in tongues, but it is prayer that is empowered by the spirit. It is not just going to God and saying, Father, bless me and give me a good day and keep that nasty person out of the road. This is, a, this is a, a level of prayer that the Spirit empowers in spiritual warfare. The sword of the Spirit is mentioned in 6.17, the Word of God. That is us proclaiming God's Word, proclaiming the message of the Kingdom of God, the message of Jesus. That's one way we do battle, the sword of the Spirit. And there's also praying in the Spirit. It's another offensive weapon for the armor of God. Praying in the Spirit. I want to quote my man Gordon again. And I want to quote him at length. So just bear with me. I will read slowly. Unlike most contemporary believers, Paul considered prayer to be above all an activity empowered by the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 indicates the crucial role the Spirit plays in our continuing warfare against Satan. For Paul, the concern was not only that they be clothed with the armor that Christ provides in the gospel, but that they take the enemy on by Spirit-empowered proclamation, that's the word, the sword of the Spirit, and by Spirit-empowered praying, both. Only praying in the Spirit will suffice in such conflict. We must be prepared to enlarge our understanding. That has happened for me this week, and I really want to happen for all of us now. We must be prepared to enlarge our understanding of the nature of praying in the Spirit. It is not only speaking mysteries to God or praising and blessing God, or wordless groans in times of present weakness, but a way of engaging the enemy in ongoing conflict. Church, we need to pray this way. We are in a battle, and one of the ways that the Spirit comes in, in to help us in prayer in general is not only to, to give us the language of tongues, the ability to pray in tongues. He gives us the ability to pray warfare prayer. And we, 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 we get a wee burst of that now and again, and then we just forget about it. We are at war, and our, our little prayers do not cut it. And that's why we need the Spirit. To drive and inspire and put fight into our prayer lives. C.S. Lewis said that enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. It is enemy-occupied territory. This town is enemy-occupied territory. 
Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part, I love this, in a great campaign of sabotage. Getting out there and wrecking the devil's kingdom. And one of the ways we do that is by this spirit-empowered prayer. Oh, I want Tuesday night to be different than last Tuesday and the Tuesday before and the Tuesday before. <laughs> I want us to lay hold on, the, on what we're actually doing and the resource that is available to us. Warfare prayer is not primarily about sick family members. That's important, really important. And I know that as much as anybody. It's not about unpaid bills. That's important, really important. And we all know that. It is about the kingdom of God overtaking the kingdom of darkness on this earth. That's what we're doing on a Tuesday night. That's why we tidied out the prayer room this week and we're going to be just encouraging, not forcing and not coercing, but encouraging people to get in there on your own and just let rip when there's no one else in the building. And if you hear a strange noise up above you, it's a, it's a bush outside rubbing on the roof tiles. It's not big rodents in the attic. But you can come in and do you know what? If you've never done it before, give it a shot. There's your key box and we'll tell you the code and how to get in. But see when you're in here on your own for an hour and there's nobody else about it and nobody can hear you and you can let rip. Oh, it's class. It's class. And you really start to engage in prayer about the kingdom of God overtaking the kingdom of darkness on this earth in a way that you might not do in the house. <laughs> That's the second thing the Spirit does for us in prayer is he empowers us for warfare. And there's a third thing, and with this I close, and this is beautiful. This is class. And you may not have thought about this before, but... One day, according to Luke 11, we're going to get back to Luke in the new year. Uh, God willing, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Luke has Jesus praying loads. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. <coughs> this is the only thing they ever asked him to teach them. You think all the stuff they saw Jesus do. Teach us to walk on water. No. Teach us to raise the dead? No. Teach us to heal the sick? No. Teach us to preach? No. They didn't ask any of that. The one thing that they went, they watched him do and they thought, we want to do that. <laughs> Teach us how to do that. This is the only thing. Because they had seen, another quote for you, the last one, Daryl Johnson. They could see that Jesus leading, counseling, healing, casting out demons and preaching ministry emerged out of his relationship with his father. And they wanted some of that. They wanted some of that. And whenever they asked him to teach them to pray, and, and this is something that has just rattled me again this week. I love it whenever I'm, I'm preaching and I'm learning a whole load of stuff as I prepare. I love it. But this is another thing that I think years, decades of, of memorization and reciting, can, you can lose sometimes the impact of it a bit. Whenever they asked Jesus to teach them to pray, to pray, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Father. Now that for them was just the world turned upside down because they didn't call God Father. 
they called him Elohim and they called him Adonai and they, they, they wouldn't have even used the term Yahweh because it was such a precious word and they didn't want to break the commandment by, by misusing it. And he said to them, Father is how you pray. In Greek, unfortunately, it's the word Abba. <laughs> well, some of you like Abba and, and maybe you think it's cool. I can't get into it. Like, But in Greek, that's the way a little child or even a grown man would still have addressed his dad. Still would have called him Abba. Term of intimacy. And Jesus said to them, when they asked him to teach them how to pray, first thing you need to know about prayer, the first thing is who you are talking to and who you are. You are talking to Father. You're talking to Abba. You need to get that. He says you need to understand who he is and who you are whenever you're coming to pray. And you might think, David, you've gone off track a bit, son, because you're talking about how the Spirit empowers us to pray. Why have you wandered off into the Lord's Prayer and Jesus starting off with the phrase, Father? Well, one of the ways the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer, and the third way, and I think if I was going to rank these, this is the most important one. The Holy Spirit comes, according to Galatians 4, we you see what he does. What do you see? This is awesome. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive, what? Adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, ladies, read sons and daughters. But call yourself a son in this context because the son gets the inheritance. So we're all sons, but we're not being gender exclusive here. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son. You know, only a couple of times Paul refers to the Holy Spirit like this. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, that's it, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit who does this. It is the Spirit who comes in. It's almost as if God takes his Holy Spirit, rams him deep down inside of you, and down in the very depths of your soul, this rumble begins. This cry that the Spirit creates within you that then bursts out of your mouth, Father. <laughs> Father. That's how the Spirit empowers you to pray because the Spirit, the Spirit himself inside you is crying out, Abba, Father, the Spirit of his Son comes into you as his Son and calls out from within you, Abba, Father, according to Galatians chapter 4. This transforms prayer because you're coming to Father. The way Jesus came to Father, we are coming to Father. And he makes a similar point back in Romans 8. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. You can pray, Father, because of the Holy Spirit empowering you to do it. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And look then at Galatians 4 and Romans 8. In Galatians 4, it's the Spirit within me who is crying out, Abba, Father. In Romans 8, it's the Spirit within me who enables me to cry out, Abba, Father. My Spirit, His Spirit working together so that from within me comes this cry, Father, in prayer. Oh, that's the most awesome thing the Spirit does for us in prayer. It's awesome that he gives us a new language for prayer. It's awesome that he empowers us to pray warfare prayers, to displace the kingdom of darkness. But the fact that he within us is crying, Father, and empowering us to do so is class. (laughs) It's class. The Holy Spirit is likened to a dove in Scripture. And in Greek, the word dove can be translated also pigeon. A pigeon really, you know, a dove is really just an upper class pigeon. They are the same thing and they're the same word in Greek. And I'm glad the Bible translators went for doves because I don't like pigeons, as you know. Yeah? (laughs) Pigeons eat my cabbages. Eat McHale, eat everything. But here's something I never read in a book. I just thought of it myself one day, so it's maybe nonsense. But when I think of a pigeon or a dove, I'll stick with dove. The one thing, the thing that instinctively comes to mind about these birds, apart from them stealing my food, the thing that instinctively comes to mind, you know, if you were to ask somebody, what, what. <coughs> What is a unique thing that a pigeon or a dog does? What do they do? What's, what? And they'll probably say to you, you can take them a long way from home and you can release them and they find their way home again. A thousand miles. A pigeon can go a thousand miles and find its way home. That's incredible. And I wonder sometimes, as, as the Spirit reveals himself in Scripture, I'm going to say dove, as the Spirit reve- reveals himself in Scripture as a dove, is there, is there some aspect to him that God has taken his spirit far from home and rammed him down inside us. And as soon as the Holy Spirit comes within us, he just turns us around and he points us for home. He just points us for Father. I'm going to take you home. I'm going to get you to where I've come from. I'm going to bring you to the Father. I'm going to put that cry within you that your whole life now is redirected and focused towards the Father. Do you ever feel a hunger for prayer? Even though it's not easy sometimes, even though we get in the discipline and actually planning and and, and structuring prayer and getting going with it, sometimes can be hard enough graft. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just the yearning. You maybe have it right now. (laughs) Just the hunger and you're like, I want to pray. That's the Spirit. That's Abba (coughs) rising up within you. That's him that is generating that yearning for the Father. The Spirit is trying to get you to lay hold on the right that Jesus has given you. In John chapter 1, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And the Holy Spirit within you is saying, lay hold on your rights, man. Lay hold on your rights, woman. You're a child of God. Let that cry of Abba, Father, rise up and come forth out of your mouth. He has imparted us with a new language for prayer. 
He has empowered us to pray warfare prayers in this spiritual battle. And he has empowered us to pray, Father. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for your spirit poured out. Thank you that deep within us right now, there is a rumbling as the spirit brings forth that cry of Abba directs us towards the Father, directs us towards home. Father, I ask that in these moments, in this this morning and this day, there will be a shift in our prayer lives. There will be a shift in our prayer lives. I thought I was going to come here and just talk about tongues, but Holy Spirit, you've done something different. (laughs) You've done something different, and I love it. I pray, God, you would empower this church for warfare to see darkness displaced, to see transformation and change coming. We can only do that by praying in the Spirit. Lord, come and empower us afresh. Transform our prayer lives. Give them wings, Lord. Cause us to soar. Put that urge within us, even to come into this place. Lock the door, close the blinds, leave the lights off. And just let loose in the presence of Father. Oh, we love you, Lord. We thank you that you have not left us orphans, that you've come to us by your Spirit. Come now and move as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.